open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. There's also some sermon notes for you to, to jot down uh, whatever it is God is saying to you. You know, we have a lot of parents and grandparents and people in this room that are around children a lot at this church. And I want you to think about the last time it was that you questioned a child who was expressing great faith in the moment. So it might look something like this. My wife and I adopted a couple of children a few years ago. It was our second time of doing this. And as soon as we announced it to our kids and said that there would be two this time around, they're now here, and we know them as Kaya and Eli, but at that point they were just an idea to us. One of my kids, after the excitement, after the announcement came out, went up, came down, and and just brought all their money to us. Every last dime they had their entire piggy bank, and they, they knew from experience that there's a lot of cost associated with adoption. And I remember my response was this, Honey, are you sure? Are you sure that you want to do this? And I couldn't sway this child. They said, yes, I want to do this. Immediately. Now, here's what I find fascinating about that. Kids have this simple faith that adults often want to train out of them. But didn't Jesus go the other way with that? Jesus said, if you don't have faith like a child... Not only will you not get into the kingdom, you won't get the kingdom. You won't understand it. So so in that moment, a child now is teaching me, right? Man, we're, get, we're adopting again. That's thrilling. Let me go gladly give every penny I have sacrificially toward that. With a living child as a prop, Jesus gives us this lesson and says, become like one of these in our faith. It's not about puffy knowledge. It's about simple devotion. It's about simple trust. And man, children have that in spades on us adults most of the time. This week I was just reading to my kids and um, just doing a little impromptu family devotion with whoever happened to be near me. There was a couple of them. So I read from my phone uh, in the message, which is a translation that a guy named Eugene Peterson wrote for his grandkids. It's a little bit different language than we understand, but very simple to understand. And I just read this from John 3.16. He gave his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one needs to be destroyed. Well, that led to this little conversation with a couple of little ones, and I just said, uh, we were talking about being right with God and what separates us from God. And I said, I asked this question, I said, so how do we get right with God? And my five-year-old daughter, without hesitation, she kind of gets into this. When she knows she has the answer, she kind of gets into a robot mode where she looks straight ahead, and here's what she said. She goes, listen to him and do what he says. Now, it sounds like, that sounds like that's just a rote thing that we say all the time, and she's just parroting back something we say. We don't say that line all the time. That's her mode of, hey, you know, Kaya, what's two plus two? Four. She would get into that same, she knows this to be true. That was her, I know this to be true mode. So think about that for a moment. How do we get right with God? Immediately, a five-year-old says, listen to him and do what he says. <laughs> and I, I looked at her and I said, the devotion's over. You're right. That's it. There's no more qualifiers needed. That's it. So here's my question this morning, friends. Is it possible to become childlike again? Adults, the older we get, we get a little jaded. We get a little cynical. 
Is it possible to become childlike again? Are we doomed to doubt or is there some alternative? Can we be certain? Can we be positive in our Christian walk? We've been in the book of Judges. And Judges is a gift to us. Uh, Judges gifts us with some incredible truth about ourselves, some incredible truth about God and how he works. We're in this period of history where God is using various judges both to deliver his people and to stop the wickedness of surrounding nations. Remember sort of this washing machine cycle of sin, right, that's, that's going on. We see it, you know, instead of the spin cycle, it's the sin cycle. We just, we see this happen over and over. We've been reviewing it in community groups over and over. This thing is happening. God is using difficult things and agitation to bring about cleanliness, right? So as you're sitting there watching your, your washing machine go, think, yeah, that's a little about how God washes us, right? He shakes us around when we need it. Judges chapter 4 and 5 is is in some ways more of the same, but it, there's just some decided twist that, 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 that goes on. These chapters are sitting side by side for a reason. Chapter 4 is sort of the historical record. It's, it's what happened. But then chapter 5 is what was going on, and it's more of a poetic record. It's, it's Deborah's song. The entire chapter is a song. And so paired side by side in this book, once again, we have, we have history and we have poetry. Think about writing history and what that entails, and think about writing poetry and what that entails. One of the amazing things about a song is that a song looks beneath names and events, and is able to kind of draw out what God was up to. Art has this way of kind of bypassing mere data and logic and gets to the heart and gets to the will of things. There's a certain surprise when you start to read the scriptures because here we are reading what what many would find if they studied the Bible in college somewhere. They just think it's one of the other kind of dusty history books. And what happens with scriptures, it surprises us because it speaks to us in the here and now. It's not just history. The Bible says of itself that it's living and active. How does the Bible do this? Instead of being just tired history of past events, it's a record of God in those events. While the customs and details are foreign to us, the human dilemmas that we read in Judges are super familiar to us. As we watch the sin cycle go on, we look at it and we say, yeah, that's us. We get it. Chapter 4, let's look there, verse 1. Verse 1 says, again, the people did evil. Now, before we just kind of gloss over Judges chapter 4, verse 1, the people doing evil, we need to stop. There's a certain boring repetition to sin. Um, Many of us have lived enough life that we know that, uh, that sin kind of comes back around in its various forms, knocking on our door, and there is an enticement or else we wouldn't go after it. But there's a certain boring repetition to sin. As you read this book, you'll hear this little drumbeat of, of, and the people sinned again. They fell back into sin. Where sins offer stale repetition, Christ offers renewal. Christ came to make all things new. We sang already about the fresh mercies that are, that are given to us each morning. And then just the creativity that God has in walking with us through life. The creativity in how he heals us. The creativity in how he delivers us. This sin that we read about, that the people keep falling into doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, is serious. It has devastating effect. Sin separates, it deteriorates, it kills. 
We know from the book of Judges, and we know from life, a simple truth, that God has laid out, here's the path of life. It's a life of obedience. And when man's way is chosen, there are serious consequences. Again, we can read about that in a book, but why it resonates so much is we can read that into our own story and say, yeah, I can remember doing those same things and how devastating it is to choose man's way over God's way. As we look at the fact that Israelites did things that were evil in the sight of God, it's good to remember, friends, that God is unchanging, that God is holy. So the way that God views our sin today and the way that God views the sin of the people of Judges is the same. So I want, I want the weight of sin, even as we read about it in things that were done that were wicked before God's sight in days of old, to land on us heavy this morning. As you read through Judges, particularly 4 and 5, there are lots of names and places to keep track of. And if you watch a movie and then someone next to you consistently says, wait, who was that person again? And as you're trying to answer the question, you know in your mind you're missing more of the story and you won't be able to answer said person's questions later on because you're trying to track. Anyone anyone with me on that? Yeah? That's Judges 4 and 5. Yeah, that was great. A few people were like, right here. Um um, that's Judges 4 and 5. There's all these names and places, and you're like, what's going on? Uh, again, one of the new features of this series that we have is right on our website is a spot where we have these daily questions where there's actually space for you to map this out. If that's helpful for you to, to map out those details, dive into it. Dive into it and start looking at that and write those things out so you can kind of place and keep track of the story. For this morning, we're not going to get all into the details of everything going on in these two chapters. We would be here a while. So instead, I'm going to focus on three people. I'm going to focus on God, who's really the hero of the story. I'm going to focus on Deborah and this guy, Barak, who's going to be introduced to us. Barak is summoned by this woman of God uh, named Deborah. And he's given very clear marching orders. He's told the number of fighting men he's supposed to bring. He's told where this army, this This army's supposed to huddle up. He says, huddle up in this place. This is found in verse 6. And then God, through the prophetess Deborah, goes on to give the location of the actual fight and the outcome of the fight. Look at Judges 4-7. And I will draw out Sisera. Sisera is the enemy general, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. So here's the moment of truth. The general is called out by the leader of Israel, this prophetess, and told, thus saith the Lord, here's what's going to happen. Get this many people, meet here. The battle's taking place here, and you are going to win. All of us in this room who have been walking with God have been in this exact same spot. We've been in a spot where we've been reading the scriptures, we've been sitting in church, we've been listening to a song, and it's this moment of truth. God's saying clear as day, here's what I want you to do. And we're faced with a very, very similar decision as what Barak is faced with. And that is, do I just trust God and do that? Simple, childlike devotion, trust, right? Or do I begin to reason and work the problem and figure out why God's a little bit off? I mean, this is, this is our daily life. We, we see this all the time. Let me make this assurance to you. If you begin to open your Bible or continue to open your Bible 
and prayerfully say, God, I'm here to receive from you. I'm here to listen to you. God will show you the way to go, and you will be faced with this moment of truth over and over and over again. God, you've just clearly said what to do. Now my choice is to, is to trust that or not trust that. Let's read about, about Barak, Judges uh, 4.8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, talking to Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak's answer was this, yes, God, if. Right? Do you hear that? We had this series a few years back. We called it Step of Yes. And Step of Yes was a series where we just looked at different individuals in history that God approached and essentially said, follow me. It's the same command Jesus gave. And we looked at their response. And what we saw was we saw some people, when faced with follow me, said yes immediately, wholeheartedly, full of courage and faith. Others said flat out no and ran the other way from God. And then there were some that were kind of brackish water in the middle, sort of yes, sort of no, put some conditions on it. This would certainly fall into that category. One of the things we did for that series was, with each individual that we looked at, I gave a little assignment, and different artists, volunteers in our midst um, helped us with this, but we had kids' drawings. And so I, I asked one of our kids, I'm not even entirely sure or remember who drew this, but I said, I want you with your family to go and study Judges 4 to 5 because we're going to look at Deborah and Barak and I want you to draw a picture of what's going on. The story is a, a picture of, a, of an army general and a female prophetess leader of Israel and they sing this duet going on in chapter 5. And so here is the picture that we got. So I get to reuse this picture, which I'm super psyched about. So first of all, we're going to look at, at Barak. Again, well-known military leader given clear marching orders, go. Victory was promised, but then he puts condition condition on, on the mission, right? He says, I will go if. I will go if she will go with me. Why do you think she wanted Deborah to, to go with him? What comes to mind? Any thoughts? Security? Why is it secure having her come? You're right. I think I think you're exactly right. But why why her? She's the prophetess of God. She kind of represents the, the, the presence of God. Do you see his logic that there's actually some good to this? There's actually some trust in God to this? I want God with me in this. Have we seen this before in the scriptures? Yeah. In his history books, as Barak would look back and, and learn the histories coming up, this, this was how God has moved in the past. So, so I want you to get inside his head a little bit. He's complex just like us. He, he actually, it actually could be argued that he was, he was trying to honor the Lord, saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna move without God coming with me. But here, God is speaking directly through the prophetess, gives him clear orders, and Barak comes back with a condition. I will go if, I will not go if she doesn't come. Puts his foot down on that one. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a chapter there called the Hall of Faith. Many of you know that chapter, and it's, um, the, the author is really highlighting just, just great men and women of faith from the past. Guess who makes it into the hall of faith? Barak. Barak makes it into the hall of faith. Hebrews 11.32, For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, one of our judges coming up. Barak, and he goes on, and a few people later is David. 
Eric's in the hall of faith. He had faith, but we see from the scripture, he wasn't a perfect man of faith, right? Didn't have all the faith that he could have. And as we look back on history, all the faith that he should have had in God. Think about conditional obedience for a moment. This is if and unless Christianity. So in other words, yes, God, if, or no, God, unless. And many of us live this way. I would say that if and unless Christianity is rampant in our day and age. Let me ask you for a second, just talking to the Christians in the room. Those of you who made a profession of faith and you've said, yes, I'll do whatever Jesus says to me. That's what it means for him to be Lord of my life. That's what it means for me to be a disciple. I follow him. What is the clear command from our general, from our Lord, Jesus Christ? Let me, let me offer up a few things. To believe in him, right? To glorify God. To go, right? Go and make disciples. Clear command. Similarly, we are promised victory. We know that the gates of hell won't prevail against God's church. So as you go and make disciples, as you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you teach them all that I've commanded you, you're going to win. I have people in this city. You are going to make progress in this. So very similar to Barak, we have the Word of God coming simply and clearly to us, what our mission is, and even the fact that we are going to win. So before we rushed to judgment on Barak and said, wow, if I was in that position, man, I would have just gone. I mean, he got promised victory. We're sitting in that very position right now, Christians. We're sitting in that very position. And yet, isn't it easy to give conditions? Isn't it easy to give conditions that sound awfully spiritual? I won't go unless the prophetess of God with, goes with me. I won't go do this unless... So my question for you this morning and our questions we're going to wrangle with a little bit in community groups this week is what what are the conditions we're putting on God? Are we living out conditional obedience with God where there's kind of a push and pull or is it simple childlike obedience? What are the results of conditional obedience? Here's what's powerful. God's really merciful. He allows participation to happen still. He even allows the victory to continue and go on. But there is diminished effectiveness and joy in the journey. Verse 9 that I just read. Nevertheless is a huge word. This is still going to happen. Nevertheless, this is going to work out a little bit differently than how it, than how it could have been. You have to understand that he's in, in a kind of near eastern culture and shame, honor are the highest thing that is of value. And for, for this man to have the enemy guy fall into the hands of a woman is both shameful to the enemy commander and shameful to him as the army commander. So it's quite a spanking if you think about it. So the victory still goes on. I'm still going to allow you to participate. I'm still, I'm still going to go with you, but there's going to be this diminished effectiveness and there's this diminished joy in the process of how it goes on because of the condition. What are the results of conditional obedience for you and I? We see some tangible ones right here. In fact, it was predicted exactly as it played out in advance for, for Barak. He immediately got to see the results of his conditional obedience. How about us? Just jot down 2 Peter chapter 1. And you can look this up later. But 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about how to be ineffective and unfruitful. It says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read that verse, you understand this clear teaching. It is possible to have knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ, to sit in church, to go to Bible studies, to have all the right answers, and yet be ineffective and unfruitful. Do you see that? That's kind of a frightening thought. I'll tell you, Americans tend to think this way about church. I'll go, Lord, if I could just get more educated. I just need to know more before I open my mouth about Jesus, because they'll probably ask me some things that I don't know. So let me get some more study in. Let me get some more Bible study under my belt. Let me maybe go to, to, to Bible college or a Christian college. Let me wait till my class puts on a how to evangelize and open your mouth and celebrate Jesus class. And then once I take that, and if I graduate with a good enough grade, then I'll go. We tend to think in terms of knowledge. We tend to think in terms of, I need to know more. Let me tell you, church, I think we know more collectively in this room than many churches worldwide through history have known. We have tons and tons and tons of knowledge. It's possible to be ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge. As you read this passage, your brain ought to say this. What qualities are we talking about? What are these qualities? Well, to understand these qualities, you have to go up and look above uh, in in verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Make every effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. (laughs) Those qualities. Look at that first part again. If these qualities are yours, and they're increasing, who's feeling overwhelmed? Me. All of a sudden... If you are at all prone to like a works theology, like if I do good, God can use me. If I do good, God will be happy with me. This, you don't like this verse, right? You're going, man, this one's, this is stirring up all those things where I know I can't stir. I know I can't add to these things. How does this, how does this happen in my life? Let me give you a giant head start. You're going to have to really go back and read this whole chapter. Prior to this, we see that these qualities are yours. Christian, listen to this. These qualities are yours by pure gift. They're given to you. God gives them to you. That's what being born again is all about. When we take our step of yes and say, God, I I trust your ways. I believe in you. I take that very first step. These qualities are ours. They're given to us. The gift of faith. For you to even say, I trust in you, Jesus, that's a gift. You now have faith. Now, add to that, and then you walk down these things. The increasing part is our part. God's part is pure gift. I'm going to give you these qualities. The way we come along and cooperate with God is that we stir these up in one another, that we increase in these. Notice that knowledge is on the list. I'm not down on growing in our knowledge about Jesus Christ. But with these whole kind of package together, we're able to be effective and not unfruitful. Here's a question out of this thought. Thinking about Barak, thinking about his condition. Have you ever prayed for deliverance from being ineffective as a Christian? Have you ever prayed for healing from being unfruitful? If you know your Bible and you've read John 15, that's a scary prayer. God, I'm unfruitful. Heal me of that. 
You know what that means? Pruning. Right? That's how. We just sang a line in a song that said, I know it's going to hurt. <laughs> I want to give all that I am. I know this is going to hurt. But heal me of it. I don't want to be an ineffective Christian. I don't want to be unfruitful. The sins of stalling and self-reliance. Think about that. The sin of stalling. God, I'll go, but first let me tend to this. God, I'll do that once I, whatever it might be. The sin of stalling and self-reliance gets us stuck in the mud. Our prayer ought to be, Jesus, kill that in us. Kill stalling in me. Kill spiritualizing. Kill self-reliance where I hear your plan and I, I know that it just needs to be tweaked a little bit and I've got the answer to kind of help make that happen. So there's yes, or so there's conditions that, that Barak puts on, but he shows incredible courage and goes anyway. Now, I want to not give you the details of the battle and the deliverance, but they're in the scriptures for a reason. Go read them. If you haven't come prepped, read them after the sermon so that you can get them. Because they're not the focus, um, I, I do want to give you one, one little juicy tidbit that you just have to see. So the faith of Barak shows... Actually, incredible courage in the face of impossible human odds. We just sang this line, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Every single person in this room is on a team. Every single person you ever look at is on a team. And while it looks like there are just myriads of choices, the Bible boils it down to two really, really simple concepts. You're on God's side or you're not on God's side. You're on God's team, or and then there's all the others that are lumped together that are against God. That doesn't look that way in our society. And people, some of you may be very offended by me saying it that way. Take it up with the Bible. There's God's team, and there's all others. In the Bible, as we read historical passages like this, we see some very tangible results of being on God's team and being against God, don't we? I mean, these battles that we're witnessing are, are displaying for us in very vivid detail what it looks like to be an enemy of God, what it looks like to be on God's team. It's pretty audacious to say you're either on my team or you're on the wrong team, but that's exactly what God unequivocally says. Now, how God wins this battle is worth taking a look. Here's some details that, again, we're not going to take the time to like unpack it in tiny detail, but here's just one good, good nugget. 900 chariots. Okay. So 900 chariots are going up against 10,000 men. 900 chariots, a, an iron chariot of that day was kind of like drones and high tech weaponry. It is, it is the cutting edge weaponry of the day. And a single chariot would slice through men like, like a hot knife through butter. That's, that's the image. So 900 chariots wins out over 10,000 men every single time, okay? That's, that's the, as you, as, you, as you march toward the war field, that's what you would see. However, 10,000 men being led by Barak, who have God on their side, wins out over 900 chariots. No problem, right? So that's the battle plan moving forward. In luring this general Sisera to fight where he did, and then sending a downpour, the balance of power of 900 chariots to 10,000 men gets completely inverted. 
And you have to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 kind of in tandem to get, to get these details of how God delivered them. No right-thinking general would have brought his place to where he thought this hard ground would turn to soft mud, ever. But God used supernatural, God used nature to come and totally tilt the scales. What I love is that we don't have any record that God assures Barak in advance, don't worry, I've got this. I'm going to send an unseasonable downpour and turn this whole place into mud, and you've got this. He doesn't say that. There's no record of him telling in advance how he's going to do it. He just says, go, fight, you're going to win. That's it. And then there's faith involved as Barak follows into it. This enemy general is like so many who oppose God today. They rest in their might. What could possibly go wrong? They're very proud. Uh, I'm here, God. I've got my stuff. I'm directly opposing you. What are you going to do about it? Man, we see that in the scriptures over and over and over. A day is coming. A day of judgment is coming. And sooner or later, whose team that you are siding with right now is going to, is going to come to, 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 to bear? And in the scriptures, we see in pretty stark terms how devastating it is to be on the wrong side. We've been having these exhibits, Exhibit A and Exhibit B. We see the people of God have sinned, and um, we have a solid rock, and we have alluring-looking sand. And on this occasion, we have the Israelites that gave greater weight to the solid rock of God and less weight to quicksand. And because of that, God rescues them. They have this prophetess who rises up, speaks forth the word of God. They have an army general who leads the people to say, we're trusting in God, even though he put a condition on it. We're going to do this. Do you see the courage of his faith to go in and do this? Do you see the humility of of Barak's faith? He could have said, well, if I'm not getting the glory, I'm not going to do this. Not sure what God would have done with him at that point, but he didn't do that. There was a humility to his faith to lead on, knowing that he wasn't going to get any of the glory in this. In fact, he was going to, he was going to have shame attached to his name uh, as he moved through this victory. And yet the Israelites put their faith in the solid rock and not in the sand. All right, that's chapter 4. Right in the middle of this kind of summer blockbuster with all this action and chariots and downpours and fighting, a musical breaks out. Chapter 5 it, you know, you feel that coming on in the movies where the song comes in and maybe you got tricked into going to a musical you didn't know was a musical. That's what this is. I mean, imagine, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stallone and then all of a sudden there's music coming. That's what happens. Uh, chapter 5, we look at Deborah. Uh, in verse 6, we see that this judge prophetess is a godly leader who, catch this, declares the word of the Lord. This is what godly leaders do is they preach forth the word. As a preacher, it's not my job to sell the word, defend the word, or make it relevant. Rather, it's just to declare it. I'm really nothing more than a paper boy. I don't write the news. I deliver the news. That's it. Here's the giantly comforting truth for Christians. Your your role is exactly the same. All you are called to do is go forth and testify. Isn't that true? Are people going to despise you for declaring the word? Absolutely. Is there growth in making sure that you're declaring the word accurately? Absolutely. But as we put forth 
the beauty of Christ to other people, this is really reassuring. It's not in our timing or delivery. It's not in our skill at apologetics. It's not in our understanding about how science and faith meld together. It's not in church history. It's not in being able to rapidly get to the book of Micah. Right? It's in declaring the word as a Christian. She declares the word, it is obeyed, and then victory comes. And then in chapter 5, this song breaks out. God aroused Deborah to oppose the Canaanites at such a time, and then he awakened her to sing. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. It says, wake up, Deborah, wake up. Wake up and sing a song. Victory songs when troops come home are not distinctly Christian, but what is distinctly Christian is giving all praise and glory to God. God, the victory is yours. If you were to track in these two chapters who wins the battle, it's God. It's very, very, very clear. And how distinct it is for a Christian to sing a praise song to the victor of letting all the glory be about God. There are lots and lots of songs. I want you to listen for it this week. There are lots and lots of songs on iPods, on the radio, on TV, that are praise songs to the victor. Many rap songs are extolling the mad skills, spelled with a Z, of the rapper himself, right? I mean, you listen to that. What are they doing? They are singing praise songs to the victor, most often the one rapping. Right? That's a, that's a praise song to the victor. How about the song, We Are the Champions? Right? We Are the Champions. It's played after every Super Bowl and just that kind of thing. And those are, those are songs of exuberant praise. You can get chills. There's nothing wrong with this. You get chills when your team wins and you hear, We Are the Champions. How devastating it would be for a Christian to be in that moment, standing, cheering with chills after their team has won, and try and think back to the last time that that was welled up in them for the victor, Jesus Christ. Could it be false idol time that we need to repent of and turn from? Again, I'm a sports guy. I get it. I want you to cheer for your team. But if that's our greatest praise, man, we're in, we're in idolatry time in the book of Judges. So praise songs for victors go on all the time. Music is this powerful thing in human beings. It strikes a chord that we just say, yes, and it gets us on our feet. It's incredible this priority of musical praise going on. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, that day Deborah sings this song. Music and victory go together, and they, and they just burst out into song. How can I keep from singing is what we just let off with. Made to worship is another song that we sing. We will sing, catch this, to our own glory, to God's glory, or to the one doing the singing. In our culture, we do tons of singing to the glory of the one singing, right? That's what makes a pop star. That's what makes American idols is that we, we sing along with them because we track so much with, with who they are. There's such an importance to music and songs. Our trust in God looking forward is so often shaped by remembering God's faithfulness when we look back, right? And songs have a, a way of providing context for that. Not just what happened in the past, but how we felt in the middle of all that. 
Let me show you the pure gift of God commanding us to worship him with music. The gift is this. While all of the focus, all of the attention, all of the praise is to be God's alone, a byproduct of that is that God loops around the back door and begins to hold us up and comfort us up as we give glory to God and we give praise and attention to God. Don't you feel totally comforted in those things? And you go, God, you are lifting me up. Here's where worship begins to sour. The attention stops being up here, and it starts being on wanting to be comforted in church. Oh, I like that song because it makes me feel comfortable. I like that song because I need a good tingly feeling. That's a byproduct as we give glory to God. That's just part of his abundant generosity to us. A byproduct is, as we sing and remember, God, what you've done in the past, man, it bolsters my faith moving forward. The second we take praise music and try to milk some comfort out of it, it begins to sour. It's really noteworthy. If you were to read the entire chapter, chapter 5, if I just stood up here and read it, and then um, afterwards you would imagine all the people from her community rushing up to her and saying how great she is and wanting her autograph and wanting her to make an album, you would see how totally bizarre that is. That's not what it's about. Because the whole chapter is about God. God, you're the hero. God, you're so amazing. And the people are left wanting God's autograph, wanting him to make another album, wanting to cheer him. And as you read chapter 5, just think of how different it is in our day and age. We long to worship something, and so often it's that person on stage who is doing stuff we can't possibly do. And so we find it in our heart to give worship where worship doesn't belong. There's no time for detail here, but let me walk you very quickly through the song itself. Here's the big idea is God's deliverance. There's joy and blessing of being willing instruments. She sings about the praise of leaders who lead, followers who follow. And what a great thing that is. She remembers God's past provision. She recalls how terrible it was to be oppressed. And then this refrain in verse 9, she again praises for leaders who lead and followers who follow. And then 10 through 27 is a call to recount the great victory and just how it happened. And we actually get some more details in song that aren't found in the historical record. And then the last part of it is the it stinks to be you part of the song, which is, you know, you were on the wrong side. And it's, again, culturally, it's a little bit of a stretch. We go, wow, that sounds kind of brutal and harsh. But that's in our breakup songs all the time. We, 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 we understand this. You know, judges are models for us. Deborah's a person who brought up to a desperate people as a prophet, as a ruler, as a deliverer. And then she gave them a reason to sing and led them in the song herself. Think about how this, how familiar this should sound to a Christian. Our life is under slavery too. We have been called by Jesus, go, fight, you're going to win, right? We have been delivered from an enemy that is even worse than the Canaanites, and the odds were stacked even more against us. Our victory is complete, completely due to God. And now we've been led to sing. Music bursts forth out of our heart. Music bursts forth out of our lips because of our rebirth. And we look to the cross, and we have assurance that God is going to deal with sin. God's going to deal with the wicked. That's what the Israelites were wondering God, how long? When are you going to stop them from punishing us? Are you going to deal with the wicked or not? 
the cross assures us God punishes sin. We see that in the body of Jesus Christ. But then we look to the resurrection of Jesus and we're assured of our victory over the enemy of sin. And what we're about to enter into, church, is this remembrance. This thing Jesus said to do as a church. He said, remember me. Remember my broken body. Remember the blood that I poured out. We call it communion. As we enter into this, we're going to think back on the cross. We're going to think back on the resurrection. Band, if you would come on up right now. Just a closing message for the Christian. For the Christian, it's this. If you are a Christian, your marching orders are really cleared. If you're a Christian, the mandate is go. The marching orders that we have as Christians is really, really clear. No more stalling. No more self-reliance on this one. If you're undecided, the command isn't go, it's come. Jesus says, come. You get in on the invitation to be on my team. It's a simple act of obedience. It's a simple step of faith. Let me pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself in the book of Judges. God, thank you for the very human characters that we find there because they're real people. They're people that are just like us. They're in a faith community and they are struggling at times desperately with doubt and self-reliance and stalling. God, thank you for the courage of a prophetess undiluted preaching forth your word. Thank you, God, for the courage of Barak who steps forward against impossible odds. And God, the miracles that we see working because of those acts of obedience. God, let those stir thoughts and actions in our own hearts and lives this morning. Amen.